Imagine you're a little child going through an old photograph album at your grandma's house and you come across this picture. And as a child, you say to your grandma, who's this weird woman? And your grandma says, well, that's me, just before your grandfather and I got married. There's a pause. And the child says, did your head shrink before you got married? Are you an alien? <laughs> you know, the thoughts that go through a child's mind. And she assures him, no, honey, that's me, but we're at a fun house. And your father, your grandfather took a picture of me in front of a mirror that distorts the real image. So that's not really what I look like. That's just a distortion from the mirror. But the child who's been raised on science fiction all of his life still has secret questions about whether his grandma is an alien. But you know, human beings, we human beings have that same habit of distorting the real image. I'm referring to the image that God has given of himself in his word. We look at it, and then in our own mind, we distort it, and then we judge God and criticize God based on the distorted image and not the real. Let me give you an example of that. And for a few moments, we'll be in the book of Genesis. We have Genesis chapter 2 on the screen. And as we open up the word of God, we are reminded of the command given to Adam and Eve in the garden, or Adam at this point. The Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. I want to highlight two words, free, freely eat. That's God's generosity. And then certainly die or surely die. That's God's sovereign determination based on his righteous character. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent comes on the scene and engages Eve in a conversation. The serpent now is more crafty, more subtle than any beast or wild animal that the Lord God had made. The devil, the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And notice how he has perverted the word of God and questioned God's provision and kindness. The woman responds in verse two, we may eat, from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat free fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now that, my friend, is a distortion of the real image that God has given of himself. For on the one hand, Eve takes something out of the word of God, and it's the word free. Oh, we may eat. The devil suggested that you can't eat freely, and Eve said, oh, we may eat, but she didn't use the word freely. She took it out. And then she added the word touch, 
scour the first two chapters of Genesis and you'll see that God never said anything about touching the fruit. But she added that in there as though God's provisions now are harsh and his generosity is limited. And the devil who puts out the bait now finds out that Eve has taken the bait and the devil sets the hook when he says to her, you will not surely die. That's verse four. So in Genesis chapter two, God said, you eat of the fruit, you will certainly die. And the devil says in chapter three, you will not certainly die. And that's the devil's language. John eight says he was a liar from the beginning and he's filled with lies. He's the father of lies and here they are. Now, what is interesting is that you go on into chapter four of Genesis and chapter five, and you'll find out that this great lie of the evil one is exposed. For in Genesis chapter four, you have the very first murder. And we talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago when Cain took the life of his brother Abel. But when you get to chapter five, here you have a review of 1500 years of human history and the monotonous tone of he was born, had some kids, and died. He was born, had some kids, and died. He was born, had some kids, and oh surprise, he dies. And the death, the death bell tolls for every man mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, except for one. And we read about that one in verse 24. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was not, for God took him. That's probably a combination of the old authorized version and the NIV, because in my mind, I still have those, uh, the cadence of that authorized version, which is so beautiful. He was not, for God took him. Here's Enoch's story. It's found in Genesis chapter 5. If you are in that chapter, you'll notice in verse 18 that his dad is Jared. Jared lived 162 years. He became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years. Now, if I were to ask you, who is the oldest man in the Bible, you would say, Methuselah. If I would ask you who is number two, you would say, well, Jared now, but you wouldn't have before, right? I wouldn't have. But here he is, only seven years away from the record. Of course, the record wasn't set at that time. He probably thought 962 is a pretty good mark, but it's going to be surpassed by his grandson. Now, notice verse 22, Genesis 5:22. After he became the father, oh, excuse me, verse 21, when Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. By the way, 65 is the youngest father mentioned in this chapter. To become a father at the age of 65, uh, for us that doesn't comprehend, but it was a different day, a different age. And verse 22 says, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch, and he should have got recognition for being the father of the oldest living individual, 
But something even more important than that is mentioned. Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. Notice the scripture tells us after he became the father of Methuselah. So if you want to see and summarize the life and story of Enoch, here's his story. He became a father at a young age and began to walk with God after he became a father. It begs the question, did something happen when his son was born? And it's rather interesting that many uh, scholars give for a definition of the name Methuselah this simple meaning, when he is gone, it shall come. The Hebrew people named their children for significant things, virtues they wanted them to experience, uh, situations that had just happened. Um, when the high priest died, a son was named Ichapod. The glory has departed and the ark of God is gone. This guy's named Methuselah. When he's gone, it shall come. The Newberry Study Bible says, here's the translation, when he is dead, it will be sent. And so you ask the question, what will be sent? And I think the answer is found in the following chapters of Genesis. The flood. Do the math. It is fascinating. Noah was 600 years old when the flood took place. That's the exact year that Methuselah died at 969 years. So Noah was 369 years, gives birth uh, when his grandson is born, and 600 years later, the flood comes. It's very possible that God gave a revelation to Enoch that the end is coming, you're living in a wicked world, and your son, even like the sons and children of Isaiah, are going to be word pictures, object lessons, and the meaning of their name will have significance to the time. And maybe that's what turned the tide in the life of Enoch, and he began to walk with God. Wow, if my child was supposed to be a sign of judgment coming, every time they had a cough, I would go berserk. Is this it? But he kept walking with God. Oswald Sanders said the baby's name may memorialize a divine revelation concerning the coming judgment of the flood. And all of that brought Enoch, or might have brought Enoch, to a crisis of faith and completely changed his life. After his son was born, he began to walk with God. It's rather interesting that the normal phrase given to every man in chapter 5 is he lived and he died. But for Enoch, it's not he lived, it's he walked. He walked with God. Now simply, if you ask the question, what does it mean to walk with God? To take it out of the mysterious and make it simple and practical, think of walking with a friend. First of all, you have to be going in the same direction. And by the way, you adjust your direction to God. Don't expect God to adjust his direction to you. 
So if you're going to walk with God, you've got to go in the same direction. First John chapter one, walk in the light as he is in the light. If you're going to walk with God, you've got to walk in the light. It is the path of righteousness mentioned in Psalm 23. The path that the shepherd leads the sheep down. It's the path of the holy word of God. If you're going to walk with God, you've got to walk in his will and walk in his word. Because God has a will and he moves in it. And he walks through it. And he takes it through time. Walk speaks of progress. It speaks of all the different aspects of your life. But you've got to be walking in the same direction. If you're going to be walking with God, you've got to walk at the same pace. Galatians chapter 5, the New International Translation says to keep in step with the Spirit. We all know what that means. To walk with someone whose pace is not adjusted to ours. You're walking with someone who walks so fast that you cannot keep up. Like a parent with a child. Or often a husband with a wife. And the husband's going ahead and not thinking of uh, his wife or his child. But also there are times when we're not in step with someone because we're walking too slow. We charge ahead, we lag behind. Peter in the garden charged ahead of the Lord and pulled out his sword and began to battle for Christ. And Christ said, put the sword away. After Peter had done some damage to a guy's ear. Tried to kill him and missed. But then when Jesus was arrested, Peter lagged behind. He was found in the courtyard with the enemies of God warming his hands at the fire. Because as you and I are wont to do, we rush ahead and we lag behind. And that's, not, that's one reason why we're not walking with God. So there's the same direction and the same pace. And then there is the acknowledging of your companion, acknowledging their presence. Now it's possible to walk with someone and not say anything, but that's unusual. Usually this is a time for camaraderie and companionship and interaction and conversation. And if you're going to walk with God, you must speak to him in prayer and he will speak to you through his word. And it's an ongoing conversation if you're walking with God. And then if you're walking with God, there's going to be a sense of peace, harmony. As it says in Amos chapter 3 and verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer, rhetorical question, obvious answer, no. And I know sometimes in churches like ours, there are people who can't get along and if they find themselves in the same service, one will walk out of that door and the other will walk out of that door just making sure they don't come in contact with one another, let alone walk with each other. Because they're not in harmony and you cannot walk with God unless you are at peace with God. And if you're at peace with God, you are out of step with the world. Because to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. G. Campbell Morgan said something that I thought was fascinating about the nature of God. He said the deepest fact concerning 
the being of God is that he is love. Of course, we find that in 1 John. He went on to say the result of that divine essence is this. He has an unceasing and unabating hostility towards sin. God is on a great campaign to remove sin from the earth and he is fighting evil in every form. That's a fascinating thought. Wherever there is love, there is hate. Because if I love health, I hate disease. If I love God, I hate sin. If I love fairness, I hate injustice. And because God is holy, he hates and despises what is not holy. Morgan goes on to say, God's fire is forever burning in wrath against evil because evil destroys the people he loves. And our God is a consuming fire because our God is a God of love. And so as Enoch began to walk in step with God, in peace and harmony with God, on the same direction with God, it wasn't an easy task because he lived in a wicked world. Genesis chapter six, I think it's verse five, that says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the face of the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's what moved God to bring judgment like a flood. You see, you and I don't get a pass we can't say, well, I don't walk with God because this is really an, easy, uh, an evil culture. It's corrupt. It was corrupt in that day. And if you walk with God, if you're in step with God, you're out of step with the world, at least at some point. So we read in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 14, only one chapter, Enoch, who is the seventh from Adam, and that helps us to identify we're talking about the same person, he prophesied. He became a preacher. And this was his message. The Lord is coming with thousands of his saints upon thousands to judge everyone, to convict all of the ungodly of all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. And all the ungodly words sinners have spoken against him. You say, that sounds rather repetitive. God never repeats himself without purpose. That was a wicked day. Ungodly people doing ungodly things with ungodly words against the holy God. Once Enoch connected his life to God, he began to preach to a lost world about the mercy of God, just like Noah would for hundreds, for oh, probably over a hundred years. And therefore, I think Enoch becomes one of the brightest stars in the whole patriarchal age. Chapter five, everyone dies, everyone dies, and Enoch didn't die. In fact, what does the scripture say? Verse 25, he was not, he walked faithfully with God. Verse 24, 25. He was not because God took him. Taken. Sounds like a great title for a movie. <laughs> Liam Nielsen says. Taken. In the middle 
of his life, he was only 365. Most people are living to 900. Taken. By the way, when you do the math, it is interesting that his father, Jared, was 527 years old, which was about half of his life because he ends up being 962. And he finds out that his son has been taken. Or how about Methuselah, the son of Enoch? He's 300 years old when his dad is taken. And it says in another portion of scripture that he was not found. Implying some diligent search. If your loved one was taken from you, would you not search high and low until they were found? And you search and you search and you come back and you say, didn't find her. Couldn't find them. The New Living Translation says that Enoch walked constantly with God and then one day he disappeared. Simply gone. Now, I don't know if somehow a message was given to the father and the son. I don't know if somehow people knew. But it seems to imply he was just gone. He didn't die, just taken home to heaven. Those whom God takes early in life are richly blessed. Doesn't seem that way for those of us who are left, but it's true. For the time they lose on earth is gained in heaven to their unspeakable advantage. The tears are shed on this side of glory. The rejoicing is unbelievable on the other side. And so Enoch now is with God. So that's his story. Becomes a father at a young age. Something traumatic must have happened because he begins to walk with God and does so for 300 years. And then he was taken in the prime of his life and didn't die. Now, that's his story. But the New Testament book of Hebrews gives us his secret. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. So here's his secret. You probably already knew it. He lived by faith. When he came to God after that traumatic experience, his life was turned around and he began to realize that God is and that he could walk with him. Verse five says, he was taken from this life so he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before, the rest of verse five, for before he was taken, he had this testimony he left this witness. He had this reputation that he pleased God. Can you think of a better life than that? That God Almighty looks down. What did he say about his son at his baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. How about at the transfiguration? This is my son in whom 
I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now he looks at Enoch and God says, this is my son, not my unique only divine son, but this is my child, redeemed by faith. And I am pleased with him. His secret was he walked by faith and faith pleases God. And that's what we need to grasp. Because without faith, this is now Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say it's difficult. It says it is impossible. Verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please God for anyone who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice this verse. Faith is predicated on the fact that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who by faith seek him. Enoch's life had to be filled with faith because he pleased God and without faith it's impossible to please him. But I want you to know that word anyone because anyone who comes to God, that means you. I hope you read the scriptures looking for yourself. I hope you take the message of the Bible personally. And while sometimes a promise may be given only to an individual, like to Abraham, Isaac will be born. Many of the promises of God are designed for his people of faith to embrace them. And here is one, you and I can walk with God in a wicked age by faith. And that's exactly what Enoch had done. I think of a young boy who comes home with his report card. He's got an A and a couple B's and oh, there's one D on it. And his dad says to him, can't you do anything right? I want you to bring up those grades, young man. And he signs the report card and hands it back with a frown. And the boy says of his dad, I can never please him. Some of you have grown up in homes just like that, doing all you could all of your life to please your parents. And it was never good enough. And you're still living in that same concept with a distorted view of God that he's like your dad. And you're very disappointed. Or a mother spends all day making dinner from scratch. <laughs> Sets it out lovingly before her family at dinner and the kids say, what is this stuff? And the father says, chicken again? And her heart is broken. And hoping for a smile, she gets a frown. And she says, I'm never going to please these people. And she gives up trying. Or maybe you go to work on a regular basis with a difficult boss who's got pressure from his boss and sales are down. The pressure is intense. 
We've got to improve it. So you make improvements and you bring those improvements to your boss and the boss says, this is not enough. You've got to do better. And instead of getting a smile, you get a frown and you just say, say to yourself, I'll never, never please this boss. And you start looking for another job. And if you can't please your parents and you can't please your family and you can't please your boss, it must be impossible to please God. But it's not. Without faith, it is. And faith starts in believing in Christ. It's acknowledging that you're a sinner, that God exists. And you come to Christ by faith. You accept the gift of God by faith, turning from your sin and embracing him. And when you do, God views you in his son, Jesus. And now life is lived by faith. Not by sight. You see your failures, but you go to the cross and find forgiveness. You see your weakness, and you're constantly depressed. And some of us keep looking at ourselves to the place where we are immobilized and neutralized from doing anything good for the kingdom of God because all we see is sin and guilt and brokenness and failure. But look to Christ. God said, in that son, I am well pleased. And when we put our faith in him and walk by faith with Christ, God looks at his son and says of us, I'm pleased. And that's the kind of witness that all of us want to leave. Pastor Doug read a moment ago from Colossians 1. We continually thank God or continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit can give so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Is it possible? Is it possible? One more time. Is it possible? By faith. Impossible without it. Impossible without Christ. By faith, you can live a pleasing life with God. Is there anything greater than that? Now, when Enoch was taken from this earthly scene, he did not go out the normal way. Usually the gateway into the afterlife, into glory, is death. And all of us will see death unless the Lord comes in our lifetime. And we would say amen to that. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But most of us may go through that porthole of death. And yet when you think about it, in one sense, the true believer never dies. That's what Jesus said in John 11, didn't he? said, I'm the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You think, you see, we're looking at this distorted view of God and this distorted view of the world because we walk by sight and everything looks funny and weird. But when we walk by faith, we begin to see things as they really are. God, his truth, life, the afterlife. And when you look at it that way, the real believer never dies. 
There was a man by the name of Preston, a very godly man who lay on his deathbed with many friends around him, weeping at the event that was soon to come. In a moment of consciousness, he said, dear friends, don't weep for me. I go to change my place, but not my company. I've been walking with God for many years. And now I'm going to be walking with him in white. That's a quotation from Revelation 3, 4. He said, I'm not going to change my vocation. I'm only going to change my location. And he passed away. Wouldn't that be great if we could begin to walk with God even right now as God speaks to our heart and says it is possible by my son. It is possible through his death, his atonement, his righteousness. It is possible to know me and I'm a loving God who wants you to freely enjoy all I've created. But there's one thing that you must not do. Don't live in a disobedience. Don't rebel against me. Walk with me in harmony and peace walking on my path, believing I am and I am a rewarder. And if you walk that way, my friend, you will please me. That's the deepest fact of life. God is. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There was a little girl who came home from Sunday school class one time, and this was their lesson, the life of Enoch. And her mother said, what did you learn in Sunday school? She said, oh, mom, we, we learned about this, this man who used to take long walks with God. And the mother said, well, how did it end? She said, well, one day he was walking with God and they went on and on and on. And God said to him, you know, you're so far from home. Why don't you just come home with me? <laughs> Now that, my friend, is not a distorted view of God. I don't know if that actually happened. But the heart of it is there, isn't it? One day God will say to you, we've walked a long road together, haven't we? Why don't you come home with me? Well, everyone else is resisting. You're crying out. I want to go home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is discouraging when we read a biography of a great child of God who puts us to shame, and that's what we feel. Guilt and failure. We could never measure up to that person. But Lord, in your economy, you don't take people into heaven based on their good works. You take them into heaven based on the merit of Christ. And their simple faith and trust in him. And Lord, you've revealed to us now this challenge that we too can experience the most wonderful life possible of walking with you every step of the way. So Lord, may today be the day of crises in our life when we cry out in faith. Let me start walking with you. For the rest of my life, until you call me home to walk with you in white. In your name we pray, amen.